0: As though by magic, Brooklyn seemed to greet the god of day, a transformed city. It had retired to rest a modest, quiet, unassuming community. It rose with the lark, dressed in gala attire, a very bride for blushes and rosettes. State Fulton Street was never so radiant before. Every home fluttered from its windows a dozen welcomes to the bridge. From the Eagle Office to the City Hall, this great historic street seemed a very maze of bright and blending colours. Not a storekeeper had failed to give some token of his joy and of the city's pride over the completion of the majestic span which has grown almost like a spider's web under his eyes. Having determined to celebrate, Brooklyn celebrated in earnest. The day was a holiday in all senses and participated in by all.
1: At all the approaches to the bridge, vast crowds had assembled at early morning. And here were found many of the features of old country fairs. Itinerant vendors of refreshment, oily-tongued dispensers of wonderful packages of jewellery and candy at marvellous low rates. Travelling photographers, street preachers and conjurers, and even an Aunt Sally establishment under one of the arches of the Brooklyn Anchorage, lent colour and variety to the scene.
0: By half-past nine o'clock in the morning, citizens young and old began to assemble around the entrance in Sand Street. Ropes were placed to keep back the throng, and officers were on duty. Soon after the time arrived for the admission of visitors, 10,000 persons were ready to occupy the 2,000 seats provided. There was a great rush, and the attempt to secure chairs made things very lively. Hundreds of flags, banners and escutcheons were in view on the walls in front of the platform and along the girders.
1: Fourteen years ago, a city of 400,000 people on this side of the river heard of a projected suspension bridge with incredulity. The span was so long, the height was so great, and the enterprise likely to be so costly that few thought of it as something begun in earnest. The irresistible demands of commerce enforced these hard conditions but science said it is possible and courage said it shall be today a city of 600,000 people welcomes with enthusiasm the wonderful creation of genius graceful and yet majestic it clings to the land like a thing that has taken root beautiful as a vision of fairyland it salutes our sight The impression it makes upon the visitor is one of astonishment that grows with every visit. This great structure cannot be confined to the limits of local pride. The glory of it belongs to the race. Not one shall see it and not feel prouder to be a man. We have brought machinery to a pitch of perfection that 50 years ago could not have been imagined but in the presence of political corruption, we seem as helpless as idiots. The East River Bridge is a crowning triumph of mechanical skill, but to get it built, a leading citizen of Brooklyn had to carry to New York $60,000 in a carpet bag to bribe a New York alderman. The human soul that thought out the Great Bridge is prisoned in a crazed and broken body that lies bedfast and could only watch it grow by peering through a telescope. The weight of the immense mass is estimated and adjudged for every inch. But the skill of the engineer could not prevent condemned wire from being smuggled into the cable.
2: It's gay to ramble out at night with some nice girl so true. When in the lovely pale moonlight To care we bid adieu The ferry boat once took us home My little girl and me Now o'er the Brooklyn Bridge we roam When moonlight tints the sea
3: In the spring it was ready. Its two massive feet of New England granite rested solidly in their timber caissons on the bed of the East River and between them arched a 1,600-foot steel span suspended from a tracery of steel cables.
2: Strolling o'er the Brooklyn Bridge, dreamy hours go by Whispering words of fond delight neath a starry sky Happy as the dancing waves, hearts are lost and won We fondly stray with hearts so gay Upon the Brooklyn Bridge
3: It was nearly twice as long as Telford's 58-year-old suspension bridge over the Menai Strait in Wales and its towers at 280 feet were the highest structures not only in New York but in the whole of the United States. Some love to
2: ramble in the park when sunset hours are near. Some love to linger after dark while stars are shining clear. But give to me a pathway sweet above the waters blue. It's on the Brooklyn Bridge we meet, I and my darling true.
3: Now, on the morning of May the 24th, 1883... It stood waiting for President Chester A. Arthur to make his inaugural walk across its bunting-bedecked causeway high above the hooting ships in the river below. Already it was a monument to the American Victorian age, to its optimism and can-do industrialism and to the cynical corruption of its capitalism. It carried the marks of both glory and guilt. It would come to be seen as a final link in the chain of communication that was circling the earth, the Suez Canal, The Transatlantic Cable, the Union Pacific Railroad, and now the Brooklyn Bridge, joining the settled east to the desert west and completing the mystic and mythical passage to the Orient.
0: If the end of the world befall and chaos smash our planet to bits, and what remains be this bridge rearing above the dust of destruction, then... As huge ancient lizards are rebuilt from bones finer than needles to tower in museums, so from this bridge a geologist of the centuries will succeed in recreating our contemporary world. He will say, Yonder paw of steel once joined the seas and prairies. From this spot Europe rushed to the west, scattering to the wind Indian feathers.
3: It had taken 14 years and $15 million to build. It had killed more than a score of construction workers. Boss William Marcy Tweed had pocketed a bribe of $60,000 to get its charter through the state legislature in Albany. A crooked subcontractor had caused wire of inferior quality to be secretly spun into its vital cables, and it had brought about the death of its designer and permanently disabled its engineer, the designer's son.
1: Dusk of a dark winter's day, that first hour walking Brooklyn Bridge. Suddenly I felt lost and happy as I went up another flight of steps, passed under the arches of the tower and waited next to a black barrel at the railing of the observation platform. The trolleys clanged and clanged. Every angry stalled car below sounded its horn as bumper to bumper they all poked their way along the bridge the L-trains crackled and thundered over my right shoulder. Only the electric sign of the Jewish daily forward, burning high over the tenements of the east side, suddenly stilled the riot in my heart as I saw the cables leap up to the tower, saw those great mesh triangles leap up and up, higher and still higher. Lord, my Lord, when will they cease to drive me up with them in their flight? And then... Each line, singing out alone the higher it came and nearer, fly flaming into the topmost islets of the tower. Somewhere below there were roasting coffee, handling spices. The odour was in the pillars, in the battered wooden planks of the promenade under my feet, in the blackness upwelling from the river. A painter's scaffold dangled down one side of the tower over a spattered canvas. Never again would I walk Brooklyn Bridge, That smelling that coffee, those spices, that paint on that canvas. The trolley car clanged, 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 taking me home that day from the bridge.
3: The bridge worked its way into the literature of the time and for generations afterwards, and still does today. It drew the brushes of painters of all schools, and it inspired good poetry.
0: And thee, across the harbour... Silver paced as though the sun took step of thee, yet left some motion ever unspent in thy stride, implicitly thy freedom staying thee. Down wall, from girder into street, noon leaks, a ripped tooth of the sky's acetylene. All afternoon the cloud flaun derricks turn, thy cables breathe the North Atlantic still. O oh, harp and altar of the fury-fused, how could mere toil align thy quiring strings? Terrific threshold of the prophet's pledge, prayer of pariah and the lover's cry.
3: And it inspired bad poetry. The nuptial
1: knot at last is firmly tied. A hundred bells ring out a merry chime. A hundred wires proclaim to every clime. Manhattan takes fair Brooklyn for his bride. In strength and beauty growing side by side, cities betrothed, you waited vigorous prime, like steadfast lovers of the olden time, ere gain and greed our early faith defied.
3: It started as a gleam in General Jeremiah Johnson's eye as far back as 1800. Scribbling in a scrapbook, the future mayor of Brooklyn noted... It has been suggested
1: that a bridge should be constructed from this village across the East River to New York. This idea has been treated as chimerical, from the magnitude of the design, but whosoever takes it into their serious consideration will find more weight in the practicability
3: of the scheme than at first view is imagined. The German wiremaker from Trenton, New Jersey, was a man much given to serious consideration. John A. Roebling, wrote Lewis Mumford, possessed iron regularity and inflexible will. He would call off a conference with a man who was five minutes late. He anticipated the customs of Erwan by regarding illness as a moral offence and penalising it severely. A completed work, when constructed in accordance with my designs, will not
1: only be the greatest bridge in existence, but it will be the greatest engineering work of the continent and of the age. Its most conspicuous features, the Great Towers, will serve as landmarks to the adjoining cities, and they will be entitled to be ranked as national monuments. As a great work of art and as a successful specimen of advanced bridge engineering, this structure will forever testify to the energy, enterprise, and wealth of that
3: community which shall secure its erection. The bridge killed John Roebling even before it was begun. As he stood one afternoon on some piling by a ferry slip, calculating the future position of the Brooklyn Tower, a ferry coming into dock crushed the piling and Roebling's foot as well. He contracted lockjaw and was dead within weeks. There was a fulsome eulogy in the Brooklyn Eagle.
0: He who loses his life from injuries received in the pursuit of science or of duty, in acquiring engineering information or carrying out engineering details, is as truly and usefully a martyr as he who sacrifices his life for a theological opinion, and no less honour should be paid to his memory. Henceforth we look on the great project of the Brooklyn Bridge as being baptised and hallowed by the life blood of its distinguished and lamented author.
3: As the mantle of the great enterprise fell, John Roebling's engineer son, Colonel Washington Roebling, "'stepped forward and caught it on his shoulders. "'The fit was good, for son and father shared many qualities. "'Washington Roebling's heavy bullet head,' said Mumford, "'reminds me a little of Ulysses Grant's. "'What it lacked of his father's granite intellectuality "'was made up for by an equally massive will. "'Teutonic will and Irish sweat built the bridge. "'Irish politics and hard-headed Irish business too,' Thomas Kinsella, the editor of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, was one of the bridge's biggest boosters. Murphy, Stranahan, Kingsley and McLaughlin all figure as names on the shareholders list, men prominent in the King's County Democratic Organisation or in the Brooklyn contracting business, or both. Irish labourers from the Fort Greene tenements hard by the Navy Yard toiled in the underwater caissons and swarmed over the rising towers and cables. A man called Michael Lynch went down in the caisson with the very first shift and never missed an hour's work in ten months. He even made a day's extra pay in overtime. Frank Harris, that hot-blooded Hibernian, claimed to have worked in the caissons too, though some are inclined to believe he imagined it.
1: Mike had a day off, so he came home for dinner at noon and he had great news. They wanted men to work underwater in the iron caissons of Brooklyn Bridge and they were given from five to ten dollars a day. Five dollars, cried Mrs Mulligan, it must be dangerous or unhealthy or something. She had never put the child to work like that. Next morning, Mike took me to Brooklyn Bridge soon after five o'clock to see the contractor. He wanted to engage Mike at once, but shook his head over me. Give me a trial, I pleaded, you'll see I'll make good. After a pause, okay, he said. Four shifts have gone down already underhanded. You may try. In the bare shed where we got ready, the men told me no one could do the work for long without getting the bends. Now, the bends were a sort of convulsive fit that twisted one's body like a knot and often made you an invalid for life. As the compressed air is admitted, the blood keeps absorbing the gases of the air till the tension of the gases in the blood becomes equal to that in the air. When this equilibrium has been reached, men can walk in the caisson for hours without serious discomfort if sufficient pure air is constantly pumped in. When we went into the airlock and the turned on one air cock after another of compressed air, the men put their hands to their ears and I soon imitated them, for the pain was very acute. Indeed, the drums of the ears are often driven in and burst if the compressed air is brought in too quickly. I found that the best way of meeting the pressure was to keep swallowing air and forcing it up into the middle ear, where it acted as an ear pad on the inner side of the drum and so lessened the pressure from the outside. When the air was fully compressed, the door of the airlock opened at a touch and we all went down to work with pick and shovel on the gravelly bottom. My headache soon became acute. Six of us were working naked to the waist in a small iron chamber with a temperature of about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. In five minutes, the sweat was pouring from us, and all the while we were standing in icy water that was only kept from rising by the terrific air pressure. No wonder the headaches were blinded.
3: The caisson disease, otherwise the bends, felled man after man, and in the end, it spared not even the indomitable engineer, Washington Roebling. Tortured by cramps and nausea, which were aggravated by nerve damage, he spent the last years of his mission sitting in an armchair beside his window in nearby Columbia Heights, watching progress on the bridge through a telescope and dictating instructions to his wife, Emily.
0: The bridge made music and a kind of magic in me. It bound the earth together like a cry, and all of the earth seemed young and tender, I saw the people moving in two streams back and forth across the bridge and it was just as if we had all just been born. God, I was so happy I could hardly speak. But when I asked Daddy where we were going, he kept singing in a kind of chant to see the man who built the bridge, who built the bridge, who built the bridge, to see the man who built the bridge, my fair lady so when we got over there we got off and walked down a street and went up the steps of this wonderful old house and an old nigger man came to the door and let us in and there was an old man in a wheelchair by the window his face was strong and gentle his eyes were gray like daddy's but they were not wild he had enormous hands but they were delicate And he used them in a wonderful way. And when he saw us, he began to smile. He came towards us in his chair. He couldn't get up out of it. And then Daddy said, this is the man that built the bridge, that built the bridge, that built the bridge. This is the man that built the bridge, my fair lady. And I knew that it was true. I knew that the bridge had come out of him, and that his life was in the bridge. He couldn't move because his legs were crippled, and yet his life soared up out of him. His eyes were calm and steady, yet they leaped through space like a cry and like a glory. He sat in his chair, but his great life sang a song, and I knew in my heart that it was true that he had built the bridge. And I didn't think at all of the men who had worked for him and had done what he had told them to do. I only knew that he was an angel and a giant who could build great bridges with his hands. And I thought that he had done it all himself. And I forgot that he was an old man crippled in his chair. I thought that if he had wanted to, he could have soared through space and back again, just like the bridge.
3: When all the speeches were over, they came to the house on Columbia Heights to pay tribute to the man who built the bridge. The house had been filled with flowers, a band played in the drawing-room, and a marquee with refreshments had been erected in the garden. Washington Roebling, wearing a Prince Albert coat and looking pale, stood at the door to greet the guests. At his side was the faithful Emily, in a dress of heavy black silk, trimmed with violets. President Arthur arrived and shook the engineer by the hand. Then Mayor Seth Lowe of Brooklyn and suddenly the House was filled with people pressing forward with congratulations and good wishes. After the President left, Roebling made his excuses and went slowly back upstairs. He was tired. The bridge belonged to the people now. his one-cent toll and get onto the bridge after the opening was a Mr. Van Curen of Brooklyn. The first lady was Mrs. C.G. Peck. Charles Overton drove the first wagon across. A reporter from the New York Times sat up all night counting firsts. The first beggar, the first negro, the first drunk, the first hearse. As dawn broke, a bagpiper marched across the bridge playing his heart out. And then... A week later, the bridge struck back. It was a holiday, Memorial Day, and the bridge was thronged with sightseers. Some reports said 20,000 in all. A crowd surged up the narrow stairs at the New York end of the promenade. They met another crowd coming from the opposite direction. People from the back of both multitudes kept pressing forward. A woman slipped. Men fell over her. Nobody could move. It was impossible to breathe. Women screamed in panic. In the crush, blood oozed from ears and noses. By the time it was all sorted out, twelve lay dead. Governor Al Smith, at that time a small boy, watched in horror from the street below. That was my first view of a great calamity, he recalled later. I did not sleep for nights.
2: It's gay to ramble out at night with some nice girl so true When in the lovely pale moonlight to care we bid adieu The ferry boat once took us home, my little girl and me Now o'er the Brooklyn Bridge we roam when moonlight tints the sea
3: But the people were forgiving. They were proud of the bridge and its fame spread round the world. Brooklynites, who had long had to put up with jokes about their home place, even forgave the vaudeville comedians of Manhattan for their celebrated one-liner about the bridge. All that trouble just to get to Brooklyn. As the immigrant ships passed the Ambrose Light and came round into the harbour, Poles and Russians and Italians would crowd the rails. In later years, it would be the Statue of Liberty they wanted a glimpse of. Now it was the Brooklyn Bridge. And sometimes an immigrant, hoisting his bundle on his shoulder and stepping out of Castle Garden to take a look at his new homeland, might make his way across the tip of Manhattan and come upon the bridge. Perhaps, just once, a city slicker approached the greenhorn, sized him up and made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And perhaps that's how one of New York's most famous bits of folklore arose. Here's how the Brooklyn Eagle, writing on the bridge's 50th anniversary, told the story.
1: When Uncle Josh, carpetbag in hand, arrived to visit his nephews and nieces in the big town and wandered down to gaze wonderingly at the great span, he was quite apt to be approached by a smooth, flashily dressed stranger who would seek to interest him in an investment in the bridge structure. Quite frequently, history records, Uncle Josh, coming from up New England way or mayhap from the west, fell for a stranger's convincing yarn and parted with his cash. The confidence man making a quick exit from the scene. Sometimes the victim was a newly arrived immigrant. Some of the victims confessed to having paid as high as $50,000 to own the structure, and some of the apprehended crooks confirmed them.
2: Strolling the Brooklyn Bridge, dreamy hours go by. Whispering words of fond delight Neath the starry sky Happy as the dancing ways, Hearts are lost and won We fondly stray with hearts so gay Upon the Brooklyn Bridge
3: And so the people sang about the bridge, sold it, bought it, strolled on it, talked about it, and now and again jumped from it.
0: Out of some subway scuttle, cell or loft, A bedlamite speeds to thy parapets, tilting their momently, shrill shirt-ballooning. A jest falls from the speechless caravan.
1: Picking his teeth, he walked through the grimy, dark entrance to Brooklyn Bridge. A man in a derby hat was smoking a cigar in the middle of the broad tunnel. Bud brushed past him, walking with a tough swagger. I don't care about him. Let him follow me. The arching footwalk was empty except for a single policeman who stood yawning, looking up at the sky. It was like walking among the stars. Below, in either direction, streets tapered into dotted lines of lights between square, black-windowed buildings. The river glimmered underneath like the Milky Way above. Silently, smoothly, the bunch of lights of a tug slipped through the moist darkness. A car whirred across the bridge, making the girders rattle and the spider work of cables thrum like a shaken banjo. When he got to the tangle of girders of the elevated railroads of the Brooklyn side, he turned back along the southern driveway. The river was smooth, sleek as a blue steel gun barrel. Don't matter where I go, can't go nowhere now. The shadows between the wharves and the buildings were powdery like washing blue. Masts fringed the river. Smoke, purple-chocolate-colour flesh-pinked, climbed into light. Can't go nowhere now. Bud is sitting on the rail of the bridge. The sun has risen behind Brooklyn. The windows of Manhattan have caught fire. He jerks himself forward, slips dangles by a hand with the sun in his eyes. The yell strangles in his throat as he drops.
4: Well, I had me a girl with a golden pearl She vowed to treat me right but here I am and I'm all alone on the Brooklyn Bridge tonight, on the Brooklyn Bridge tonight. A thousand thoughts run through my mind as I watch the city lights. My love is gone and I'm all alone on the Brooklyn Bridge tonight, on the Brooklyn Bridge day, cause the water was cold in the lower bay, the water was cold in the lower bay Now I got a girl with a golden curl She always treats me right But here I am I'm not alone on the Brooklyn Bridge tonight On the Brooklyn Bridge tonight
3: They didn't all do it out of despair, though. Some did it for bravado and money. For the most famous of them, Steve Brody, it paid off. For Robert Emmett Odlem, it didn't.
0: He had come to New York from Washington a week before the attempt which had been widely, if surreptitiously, advertised, with the result that, while the sporting element of the town were preparing to witness and celebrate the effort, the police were on guard to frustrate it. Odlum, declaring he had never felt better in his life, and apprehensive only lest the police interfere with his plans, donned a pair of grey trunks and a fancy red sweater, upon the bosom of which his initials were interwoven. He also wore brown canvas shoes, a black soft hat, blue jacket, and a white silk handkerchief tied round his neck. If I should die, I don't want the public to think I had no good object in view, said Odlam. I have for years illustrated the fact that men do not die while falling through the air, and that no matter if men or women were 100 feet high on the roof of a burning building, they would not hesitate to jump into a net. If they read, I had successfully jumped 140 feet from the Brooklyn Bridge.
1: To outwit the bridge police who lay in waiting, a friend took a cab across the bridge and was apprehended as the supposed bridge jumper. Odlum followed, unsuspected, in a black-covered wagon. This is a bully joke on the police, he said. As he stripped off his outer garments and attired in only shirt and trunks, awaited the critical moment to leap. Thousands of spectators on the bridge and on the shore and on the ships in the river, sailors climbing the rigging of vessels, anticipated the event.
0: Suddenly and without warning, Odlum stepped out on the railing of the bridge with eyes turned towards Governor's Island. Deathly pale, he gave his trunks a hitch, threw his chest out, brought his feet close together and took the fatal leap. He held his left arm rigidly down against his thigh, and stretched his right hand at full length above his head, with the palm open as a sort of rudder, intended to maintain his equilibrium. While shooting through the air, he was a perfect picture of manly grace and strength. Dead silence from the watching multitude marked the plunge as he stepped off the railing and shot downward. The strong wind blowing at the time seemed to turn him slightly around. For a hundred feet he fell straight as an arrow, then doubled up slightly and struck the water with his feet and right hip. The force of the blow seemed to twist his body double, and as the jumper disappeared beneath the surface of the water, a fountain of spray twenty feet high was sent into the air.
1: Captain Boyton leaped overboard from the tug. "'with his clothes and shoes on, and finally reached Odlam, "'who was floating with his face downward "'and his red shirt torn in pieces by the force of the fall. "'Boyton finally pulled the prostrate form up on the tug "'to the murmur of thousands of voices on the bridge and elsewhere. "'Is it all over?' Odlam regaining consciousness murmured. "'Yes,' was the answer. "'Did I make a good jump? "'A fine one, a daisy. "'I'm so glad.' The bridge jumper died before the arrival of an ambulance. James Haggart, the decoy who had used the cab, was meanwhile arrested and locked up on the Brooklyn side of the bridge, but was, of
3: course, later released, there being no valid charge against him. Odden was dead and soon forgotten. But Steve Brodie, the most famous Irish jumper who may never have jumped at all, lives on in legend. The newspapers of the time were full of his quotable braggadocio.
1: Oh, you need not rub me. Give me a drink. I'm all right. I can jump off a bridge a million feet high. Let me alone. I'll show you that I'm all right. I look like a man who's committed suicide, don't I? No, I made a clean $300 and jumped a square jump. Show me the man who kicks my style of jumping.
3: But many were sceptical. Some claimed that a dummy had been dropped from the bridge and that Brodie had swum out from the shore in time to surface beside a passing boat. The people didn't care. They preferred myth to truth every time, and Brody became famous. Rich, too. He opened a saloon on the Bowery, with a large oil painting of his leap hanging on the wall. He starred in a smash-hit play called On the Bowery, which featured a reconstruction of his jump, with all kinds of special stage effects. Until his death in 1901 of diabetes, Steve Brody was a superstar. As the years went by, the bridge slowly sank into the people's subconscious. They didn't think about it. They accepted it and enjoyed it. But a few did think about it, intellectuals and aesthetes mostly. In the 14 years that it was a building, Thomas Edison had invented electric light and Alexander Graham Bell the telephone. The bridge, to these thinkers, was the consummate symbol of the machine age. Lewis Mumford was upbeat about it.
0: The Brooklyn Bridge was both a fulfilment and a prophecy. In the use of steel in tension, it disclosed a great range of new possibilities, for the great mission of steel as a building material is essentially to span and enclose space and to remove the inconvenient bulkiness of bearing walls and stone columns. In its absence of ornament, its refusal to permit the steel to be other than its own unadorned reality The Brooklyn Bridge pointed to the logic and aesthetics of the machine.
3: But Henry James was fearful of the coming mechanical monster. He looked at the bridge and saw not a static objet d'art, but a moving, foreboding engine that threatened the humanity of man.
1: This appearance of the bold lacing together across the waters of the scattered members of the monstrous organism lacing as by the ceaseless play of an enormous system of steam shuttles or electric bobbins, I scarce know what to call them, commensurate in form with their infinite work, does perhaps more than anything else to give the pitch of the vision of energy. One has the sense that the monster grows and grows, flinging abroad its loose limbs even as some unmannered young giant at his lark and that the binding stitches must forever fly further and faster and draw harder. The future complexity of the web, all under the sky and over the sea, becoming thus that of some colossal set of clockworks, some steel-soled machine room of brandished arms and hammering fists and opening and closing jaws.
3: Nobody is nervous about the Brooklyn Bridge today. Compared to its glamorous sibling, the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, away to the south of the harbour, it looks staid and a bit grimy. Tourists like to photograph it from the Esplanade in Brooklyn Heights. The railway that Roebling designed for it has gone long ago, and subway riders coming in from Far Rockaway on the A train or from Coney Island on the 6th Avenue local slide under the East River through the tunnel, or cross it on the Manhattan Bridge just upriver. For car commuters, the bridge is only a minute or two of crackle as their tyres hit the metal-studded roadway. But on weekend mornings, joggers work out on the old wood-slatted promenade, and the city has marked out a section of the walkway for bike riders. Old John Roebling would have liked that. This part I call the elevated promenade, because its principal
1: use will be to allow people of leisure and old and young invalids to promenade over the bridge on fine days in order to enjoy the beautiful views and the pure air. I need not state that in a crowded commercial city such a promenade will be of incalculable value.
5: Like the folks you meet on Like to plant my feet on The Brooklyn Bridge What a lovely view from Heaven looks at you from The Brooklyn Bridge I love to listen to the wind Through her strings The song that it sings for the town I love to look up at the clouds in her hair She's learned to wear like a crown If you've been a rover journey's end lies over the Brooklyn Bridge Don't let no one tell you I've been trying to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge Folks in Manhattan are sad Cause they look at her and wish they had the good old Brooklyn Not any old bridge But the Brooklyn Bridge I pity the New York crowd The folks in Manhattan are sad Cause they look at her they had the good old Brooklyn Nothing but the Brooklyn
3: For good old Brooklyn Bridge They'll be celebrating the Brooklyn Bridge this week and for weeks to come. New Yorkers from Manhattan and Brooklyn And from Queens and the Bronx and from Staten Island, too. There'll be parades and fireworks again. The ships in the harbor will sound a salute with their sirens, and the people will dance and play music. A monument to democracy. That's what Chester A. Arthur called the bridge when he declared it open a hundred years ago. The thing about democracy is that most people, Americans included, take it for granted. And after all the tumult and shouting of the centenary celebrations dies, New York will start taking the Brooklyn Bridge for granted again. Except maybe for the heirs of that Russian poet who saw it as something more than just a way of getting from Manhattan to Brooklyn and back again.
0: So I, in greying evening haze, humbly set foot on Brooklyn Bridge. As a conqueror presses into a city all shattered, on cannon with muzzles craning high as a giraffe so drunk with glory eager to live i clamber in pride upon brooklyn bridge as a foolish painter plunges his eye sharp and loving into a museum madonna so i from the near sky be strewn with stars gaze at new york through the brooklyn bridge